I'm John. I'm Paul. I'm George. And I play the drums. From Pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network, it's Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette. And Chachi's co-host, Beatles instructor at Suffolk University, David Galan. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Get Back to the Beatles. I am your host, Chachi LaPrette. We're here in the Boston Podcast Network, Pod617.com, or wherever you hear your favorite podcasts. Our co-host is with us, Professor David Gallant, teaches the Beatles class at Suffolk University in Boston. And today's show is brought to you in part by Subaru of New England. So thank you all for being here. Professor, how are you today? I'm fine, Chachi. The semester has begun, and I can't wait to tell my students about this interview. We are very excited to have our guest, but I also want to introduce another member of our panel today. Her name is Stephanie LaPrette. Stephanie worked for many years at Warner Brothers Records in New York City, uh, where she worked with many of Warner Brothers' biggest bands and stars. She also worked in radio at WBCN in Boston, WHEB in New Hampshire, respectively. She worked in record retail for many years as an executive at Strawberries Records. She worked at Good Vibrations, and she has also worked in the print media. Uh, But as I am a Beatles fan, Stephanie is a Bee Gees expert, has worked with them in the past, and I will tell you from personal experience that all three of them uh, loved Stephanie. Barry loved Stephanie, and so that's why we invited Steph on our panel today. And I will say one of my biggest accomplishments in my life was convincing Stephanie to become my bride. So that's uh, Stephanie LaPrette is joining us. Good morning, Stephanie. Beautiful today. Oh, my Lord. I know. Try to keep the hair on point. Well, your hair looks beautiful, and it's perfect for our guest today. We're very excited to have uh, the author of a new book called The Cutting Edge, the story of the Beatles hairdresser who defined an era. It's on Fox and Crow books, available wherever fine books are sold. And during our program, I'm sure our guest will tell us how you can get a copy, even autographs. So we are very excited to welcome Leslie Cavendish. Welcome, Leslie. How are you today? I'm really well, thank you. It's a really lovely sunny day in London today, one of the hottest days of the year in the middle of September. So I'm good, thank you. Uh, Good for you. It's really great to have you here. Uh, Everyone on the panel has your book and read it, and I just really enjoyed it. And uh, for you, you know, the industry, much when the Beatles started, it was about the music, it was about the clothes, and it was about the hair. And you happened upon, by chance, a career uh, in hairdressing for simply one reason, uh, to meet girls. Is that correct, Leslie? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was a good idea. You know, I couldn't, I wanted to be a footballer. You know, I wanted to be a soccer player. I wanted to, I wanted to do what they did. I used to love it. I still love it. But um, you realize that, you, you know, it comes to a point where someone says to you, uh, thank you, but no thanks. So I realized at a very early age that I wasn't going to make it. And uh, I stumbled on hairdressing. Um, and, and you stumbled on someone who's very significant. I think it was before worldwide fame, the great Vidal Sassoon. Well, he was uh, setting a fashion. He, yeah, you know, he, he's from the same part of London as me, the East End of London. That's sort of uh, what we call uh, the, the, the Cockneys. Um, and, uh, I ended up going to his place when I was 15 years old. He just uh, moved from, he was in a shop in top of Bond street, which is the smartest lady. And if your lovely Stephanie ever gets to London, Chachi, take her down there and spoil her because, um, 
She'll say, yeah. She could well empty your pockets there. But uh, anyway, it's a beautiful place, great clothes, jewellery shops. And there I was from North London, came up, and he'd opened up a salon, uh, number 171, uh, New Bond Street, right next to Gucci, and a beautiful place where the royalty bought their um, little bits and pieces, a place called Aspreys. So if you've got anything with Aspreys of London, uh, it's by appointment. And Vidal's was stuck just in the middle of it. And, um, yeah, I walked into that place, and um, it was an eye-opener. It was like going back to a school of life. That's how I look at it. I opened the doors, and suddenly education came about. And many celebrities walked through that front door. Yeah, because, you know, my mum's... Um, my mum used to love Shirley Bassey. You know, Shirley Bassey, you know, beautiful, the voice, the costumes. Um, she, you know, my mum used to love her. And Goldfinger. Goldfinger. James oh, Black. way before Goldfinger. This was, the, yeah. this was when she nearly just had fingers. And um, <laughs> uh, she, you know, you see these people. And as you know, Steph, when you go to the hairdressers, and then if you go to a very early appointments, but... Maybe sometimes you go without your makeup on and your hair's all wet and you're thinking about things and whatever you've done, what's ha happened, you, you know, you're your first client at half past eight. And at 8.30, you know, you walk, I walk into the salon. It's a bit like a guitarist, you know. It's a bit like a, a session when he, when he does an unplugged session. You know, it's just him and the guitar rather than the backing band. And, you know, they get these ladies come in and there was Shirley Bassey came in early morning and I'm looking at her. They did, they, she wasn't looking like a golfing a lady. She was looking like uh, she just got out of bed. Um, and uh, you look at these people and you think, oh, my God, that's Shirley Bassey. And I'm going to tell my mum I saw Shirley Bassey. My mum's going to think she looked like she did, you know, when she was on stage. And then you look around and you've got someone called um, I had to wash someone's hair. <laughs> It's a really funny sort of strange story that you never, one of the rules is you never sort of say, oh, hi, Shirley, or, you know, you've got to remember. Vidal always taught us that the client was, um, uh, the person was, she was always the client. That person, never forget, you said, they are the client. Respect. And just, you know, don't get too personal, verbally anyway. Um, and uh, so you sort of wouldn't say, you know, Miss um, Bassey, what you're doing. You just let her talk. But there was one lady there that, that I remember washing, uh, washed her hair, took her back to the, um, uh, to the stylist. And I really didn't know what she did, you know. And I was casual. I was only young. I think 15, just after 15 and a half. And uh, she's talking about meeting um, the prime minister to the stylist. And this lady, and I'm thinking, well, you don't look like no politician to me. And I said to her, what do you do? She said, oh, my, my, my sister is uh, Jackie Kennedy. And it was uh, <laughs> Princess Lee, Lee Radwell, Brazil. You know. Lee Radwell. Yeah, and it was really, oh. like, it's really funny, you know. And at 15, I'm thinking, wow, she don't look like no Princess Radwell. You know, she, but there were people like that you still got to meet. And uh, you learned very quickly that um, to keep quiet and observe <laughs> and respect and have a laugh. That's what Videla's was all about. He always taught you that. Be respectful. Oh, the secrets you must keep. Uh, <laughs> from all of that. Kept and didn't keep. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then uh, uh, Professor, did you want to say something? Well, no, I just, I'm, I'm reflecting on uh, what, what Leslie's just mentioned and um, just sort of the, the sense of personal 
I don't know, control and knowing one's limits when he must have been gobsmacked or whatever smacked when he had in front of him both Deanna Doors and Jane Mansfield, uh, all four of them, so to speak. <laughs> Leslie. Oh, my God, did you? <laughs> well, I'm glad you brought that up because um, uh, that was one of the funniest stories. You know, there, you know, I met there was a couple of ladies, obviously, uh, being around when I was around. You know, there were people like Raquel Welsh. You know, they they were you know, and I lucky enough was asked to go and do Ringo's hair for the Magic Christian. So I met Racco Welsh, but I was, I was sort of older then, you know, I was a good 21 years old when that happened. <laughs> but, you know, at uh, 15, um, there was Dinah Dawes uh, used to come in and, you know, she was no tour. She was the um, Britain's Aster to Marilyn Monroe, but she was, she was very funny. And she was, uh, she was married to a guy that was a bit of a, he was a, he was a criminal, you know, he used to hang around and, uh, Rob Banks and, uh, you know, but you always got away with it. So you have to be a bit wary, but she used to live in the country and the stylist that used to do her hair, um, we used to go to the country with her and always have these great parties. There would always be, oh, the guy whose name was Ricky. And he said, oh, that was a really great weekend, um, uh, Dinah. And she said, yeah, it was great, wasn't it? And I'm 15, I'm holding the hair and I'm saying, oh, what happened? So she just didn't say anything much. <laughs> I used to wash her hair and at, uh, next time she came and I was washing her hair and I said, oh, I must have been about 16. I thought, you know, I, had, I passed my, you know, I, I, my driving test and I could fight for England now, you know, so at 16, I'm a man. I've already been permitted at 13, so I'm three years ahead. And uh, I said to her, oh, I'd love to go to one of those parties there. And she just looked me in the eye and she said, I'll tell you when you're ready. <laughs> which was great but then what happened she said to me i'm coming in tomorrow with a friend of mine um i think you'll find her of interest to you so i said okay fine and that Vidal, it was at the, it was at the gold it was at the grosvenor house salon which is off uh, park lane very chic place and you had to come down from reception walk downstairs to the um basement uh the ground floor should we say and um marble steps and there was you had to go through a door then to come down the stairs. You had to do a quick right and then you're on the ground floor. And she came in and first of all, I never saw this woman's face for about five seconds because she had a very big bust. <laughs> and she walked in and it was Jane Mansfield. I thought, God, oh, Jane Mansfield's come down with Diana Dawes. And they've walked down the stairs and she's laughing. Okay, so she sits down. Um, she, you know, Johnny, uh, Jane Mansfield is always in the papers, you know, for, I'm not sure she was a great actress, but her figure, her notoriety with the guys that uh, she's with. And, um, and the stylist said, I think you need your roots um, um, sorting out. But, um, Leslie, she said, that's fine. She's you know, both bleach blondes said, uh, Leslie, would you take him upstairs in the lift, uh, which is the third floor? The lift literally was literally that big. <laughs> I got in and I knew they were teasing me. I knew what was going to happen. And I got in the lift and they said, after you, Leslie. And also at Vidal's, when you used to have long hair, Vidal used to make them. And this was just a hairdresser. This is a proper hairdressing thing. If you had long hair, you used to take their gown and they used to have their um, take their, their jumper off and it, the gown would be sitting on the shoulder so you could cut the hair. So you can imagine that's where they were at. 
So they had their gowns on, and I sat in the, <laughs> in the middle. Of, I had Dinah Dawes on my right, and I had Jane Mansfield on my left, and I was that tight to them. I really was. I was <laughs> it was so small. And I said to myself, no one would ever believe this. This is like... <laughs> no one, I can't tell anybody that this is happening to me. And they were giggling in the lot. They were, both of them were just literally giggling. I took them up to the top floor and they went out their head on. Yeah, that was a funny experience. It's not one of those things that you could actually say, guess what I've just been through or been, been nearly, nearly suffocated by, you know. It was, uh, yeah, good story. Thank you, Dr. What a way to, what, what a way to go, right? Uh, the, the, the girl can't help it, but the stylist had to. got to do what you got to do, you know. Yeah, got to do what you got to do, right? I'm, I'm doing it for, for God, country, and queen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, Leslie, you um, things kind of changed for you around 1966. You were working under Roger Thompson. And I got to tell you, the book is so much fun to read. So many stories. We're just going to touch on a few because we want people to buy your book because uh, Steph and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, it all happened. The whole Beatle experience began when Jane Asher walked in and needed her hair rinsed or blow dried. And uh, your boss that you were working under at the time was unavailable. And though your story changed drastically, his did as well, because you became a favorite of the Beatles while Roger missed the opportunity. Well, you missed the opportunity. But um, yeah, it's it a situation where, again, you, you know, we had Jane Asher that, that came into the salon. Um, we all knew who she was. Um, you never sort of, when I used to wash her hair, you'd never say, you know, how's Paul? How, you just wouldn't say it. What you would say was, you know, have you been busy lately? You know, then she would say, yeah, I'm doing a film or, um, you know, or I'm doing a play. Well, she's, she's, you know, Shakespearean trained actress. She's, she's uh, a good actress, really good actress. And Roger used to do her hair. And I used to go and wash her hair. And her hair was as long as yours, Stephanie. And I think your hair looks very thick. Um, and thick hair is porous. But she was a natural... Uh, a natural redhead, strawberry blonde, you know, redhead, strawberry blonde, really thick hair. So I used to wash it uh, while Roger was doing all the other clients. And then I used to hand dry it section by section. And oh. then I'd do the fringe. You've got similar hair, do the fringe and everything. And then I'd go over to Roger. That would take me about 45 minutes to do that, 35 minutes maybe. I'd go over to Roger and say, Roger, uh, Miss Asher is, uh, is ready. And they'd go, okay. He literally would, whatever he was doing, he was a really slow head, uh, uh, hairdresser, very slow, but enough to put the scissors down, come over to Jane, sort of, um, I was now standing there. I was the, his junior. He would pick up the comb and he would go push it. I've done, all, I've done everything, right? But he'd go push the hair. He'd sort of do that. And uh, he'd make a move ahead. And then he'd show her the back mirror. And she would say, Thank you, Roger. And which is fair enough, isn't it? You know, Roger's the man. Um, cut the long story. I then become a stylist. And Roger, she comes into Roger. Now, sometimes you don't need an appointment. It used to be called a comb out. So if a client was going somewhere, so she was doing a photo shoot somewhere, she would just quickly come in and have a comb, comb out, right? And every time she came on, two occasions she came in and Roger said he couldn't do it because he's so slow, he's still doing his eight o'clock, which is about 11 o'clock in the morning still. <laughs> and he said, no, Leslie will do it. I said, okay, so I went over and this time I would say, uh, uh, let me call her Jane. Jane, I just want to trim that little bit of the fringe there because it's just hanging down. So 
was getting involved more and I cut her hair. So I could always say I cut Jane Ash's hair. And uh, finished it. She went, thank you. And then on the third occasion, she came down again. And again, Roger, now, you know, you've got to use your, what we call, you use your head a little bit. When you've got a good client coming like that, you make sure you just stop for a second. You know, you, she's a good customer. Um, should look after her. I'm not saying that you should have favoritism, but you know, she's not gonna, it's not going to take long to do a comb out. And uh, he didn't do it. And the receptionist said to me, you know, can you fit Jane in? Because uh, Roger, again, can't do it. And I said, yeah, okay. And I sat down, did the same thing, but only this time someone else was washing her hair. It was on a Saturday morning and uh, I normally go to football in the afternoon. I still do. And she was there and I finished it. And I finished it. I showed her the back mirror and did everything. And she said, fine. And then she just said to me, what are you doing this afternoon? And I said, for one mad moment. And I said, what, why is that, Jane? She said, a classic. Have you got time? So don't forget, I've never spoke about Paul McCartney. I've never spoken about the Beatles. All the time I've been with her. And she just said, have you got time to cut my boyfriend's hair this afternoon? Well, <laughs> boyfriend, Paul McCartney. Uh, yeah, of course. Um, uh, what time? And she said, what time suits you? And I look, I, this is where I pushed my luck. I was going to change it. I think, right, the football game starts three o'clock. It's in West London, Shepherd's Bush. Shepherd's Bush to St. John's Wood, um, which I could do in 25 minutes. Um, right. How about uh, half past five, quarter to six? And I thought for one moment she was going to say, well, actually, we want it done sort of now. And I would have said, yep, I'll come over straight away. And she said, no, that's fine. That's fine. No problem. So I thought, okay. So I've gone to this football match uh, with my comb and scissors. I had a carpet bag. So I've got my blow dryer, my comb and scissors in there and whatever, whatever. And I'm sitting at my football match and I can't tell anyone. Oh, I don't want to tell anyone. But I'm thinking, when I finish here, I'm actually going over to a guy whose I had the Beatles posters on my wall. And I'm going over to go and cut this guy's hair. So when she said, okay, I said, Jane, I better have your address. And she gave me her address. She wrote it down. And she said, um, she wrote down 7 Cavendish Avenue. And I said, Jane, that's really weird. I said, that's my surname. And she gave me the great though. She said to me, well, maybe it was meant Leslie. <laughs> There you go. So I, 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 I have put in the book, you know, and I've looked, you know, after looking at it and thinking how that situation came about, I have worked out that, you know, Roger Thompson, who was the artistic director of Vidal Sassoon, one of the great, great haircutters this planet's ever seen, the slowest great hairdresser this planet's ever seen, went to New York, uh, opened up Vidal there. But as far as I'm concerned, he is the Pete Best of hairdressing. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Got to be. be. And your book is interesting because it leads to blows later on. Oh, um, jealousy, jealousy, jealousy. Yes. He never forgave me magical mystery tour the lot. But anyway, we can talk about that. Um, yes. No, it, it came to blows, unfortunately. And um, and uh, when he went to New York and when I left to open up my a beetle back salon, um, I thought I'd better go down and see him because in a way, you know, I did, he taught me hairdressing, the guy, and I thought, you know what, I would never have met the Beatles through this, I don't know, maybe I'll go down there, I did, you know, when I was a, when I was about 40, 50, I, did, I studied karate, I went to karate lessons, and I always learned that you never stand 
square on. You have your one foot behind you, just in case someone goes, so you can move around. And so I went down to the salon, he was there, and I did have my foot back. And I went, hi, Roger. And I thought, if you swing at me, please don't swing at me. And he went, hi, and we had a little chat. And when I had a drink with him at the Grosvenor House Hotel and wished him luck in America, and he asked what I was doing. I said, the Beatles have backed me for a hairdresser salon, Roger. <laughs> mm. um, no, you know, mm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Success is the best revenge. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't really revenge because, uh, but uh, there you go. You know, take your chance. And so nothing succeeds like success. That's correct. So you go to Paul's house on Cavendish, and there are the usual girls hanging at the front door, yeah. and uh, and you make your way inside. And what what was that experience like when you first walked? Well, that was strange because you know I, I've arrived there, and then you got the girls outside. The you know the apple scruffs. So I found out later that. Um, uh, George wrote about them. Uh, very respectful girls. They must have known from the milkman to the postman to anybody that went in there, they would know. And so a strange face coming along with a carpet bag. What are you doing? What are you doing? I actually stood across, I parked my car across the road. I didn't want to, I had to take a few deep breaths and think to myself, now, Leslie, you've got to be start being professional now. Um, you know, I'm a Beatle fan, and um, but I've got to act like a, professionals that you've got to go in there with a clear head and he's a client the thing was that i pressed the bell and they said to me oh what do you do you know i said i don't do anything i could have been an electrician as far as they're concerned and i said oh nothing and so the buzzer went and the housekeeper let me in and said oh mr M mr mccartney is expecting you so I walk in and thank you very much and i walk in the front of the lovely georgian house nothing extravagant but detached, beautiful Georgian house. On the left-hand side is a green Aston Martin. Um, who has Aston Martins? I'm saying to myself, James Bond now, Paul McCartney. You know, so here we go, here we go. This is it. Um, knock on the door, expecting the housekeeper who already let me in the front door would then, I've got it all planned. You know, she was going to say, would you like to come in? Would you like to come and sit down? Mr. McCartney will be with you very soon and I'll be summoned. Um, so I stood there and I was actually quite relaxed because I knew that the housekeeper was coming. Pressed the bell, da da da, door opens. There's Paul McCartney in a tank top, one of those sweaters that you always see him in. I went, hello. And he said, uh, I understand that, uh, you know, he's from Liverpool, obviously. Uh, you've come to cut my barnet, which is a Cockney <laughs> saying for a barnet fair hair. So that's what rhyming slang is all about. <laughs> and uh, what a nice thing to do. Um, would you like to come in? Come in the front room. He took me in. So would you, would you like a cup of tea? I said, yes, please, no sugar. <laughs> and uh, he went and spoke to the house lady who brought us in a cup of tea. He disappeared for a few minutes. I'm sitting now in Paul McCartney's front room. I've got uh, guitars. I've got little cassettes all over the place. I've got, um, I, uh, I, there, there is a piano. There was a piano down there. Um, so I read later that he had this psychedelic piano up, up on the floor. But I'm telling you, I saw a piano there and I saw quite a few guitars hanging around. And I was sitting there and, it was a, and he had this, um, there were hairs everywhere, loose hair. And this bad sort of a dog comes in, this old English sheepdog called Martha, who, you know, I've, I've been, done quite a few interviews uh, at um, Beatle conventions and whatever. And a lot of people think that, that Martha was a relation of his. Uh, Martha was... Um, his dog, my dear. <laughs> a bit like those lovely, you know, I know you're into the Bee Gees 
um, I used to cut Barry's hair um, as well in Robin. And same with, you know, he wrote a song called Barnaby. Yes. The uh, so there you go, you know, and the first of May, uh, which happens to be Barnaby's birthday. So, you know, these guys wrote songs. So, so there was McCartney, there was um, Martha, and there we are having a cup of tea. And he's actually, what was, what was really interesting about the whole thing was, when I thought about it, if, she, if it was coming into the salon, it would be different. It would be Mr. McCartney is in, your client is in. He would have sat down. I would have looked him in the mirror and we would have had a chat and how do you want your hair? And it would be either in a private room that Vidal had or in the sun or whatever, whatever. But to be in his own front room and have a cup of tea with a guy and just talking and, um, and you know, I've got now got to make the approach and say, right, where do we do your hair? You know, I, I've got to bring, he didn't, this was not sort of, um, okay, Leslie, right, um, I've got to be out in one hour's time, can you quickly do my hair? Uh, it was all so relaxed, which then put me so much at ease. Um, okay, so where am I going to do his hair? You know, so we go upstairs, uh, so en suite bathroom, off the bed, never, I don't think I ever saw one of those before. Um, if I did, I didn't know anyone that had one. And I had, so we went in the bathroom, and there's a mirror. I got the chair that was there, that was in the, by the dressing table. And I sat him down and I'm looking at Paul McCartney in his bathroom and I have to wash his hair in a tap and pour water. You know, I didn't have one of these you know, automatic um, washing, uh, wash up basins that I carried with me. It was literally fill the tank, fill, fill the tap, I'll put the plug in, pour the water on and then do it, wash it, do it. And at Vidal's, we taught always, to this day, when I speak to hairdressers, uh, they sit and we have a great discussion, but you should always cut hair dry and then you check it wet. And I, there are reasons why you do that. I won't get into it, but there is a reason why you do it. And it worked out that um, later on, regarding the Paul is dead situation, there's that I know why you should cut hair dry and when you cut hair wet. But there I am cutting his hair dry, watching all these you know, I didn't cut much off actually, but you know, there are hundreds of thousands of dollars of little strands of hair falling on the floor. Um, uh, which I thought of, I didn't, I, I just thinking I'm cutting the Beatles' hair, you know, and I know people want Beatles' hair. Um, and that was so that never came into it. And then we washed it. And one of the things was for me, being a hairdresser, what would it be like because when you when you check the hair, you you can push it all off the face. So there I am combing Paul McCartney's hair all off his face. So I could just see his face. And uh, I was having quite a little kick out of that because I was double checking the hair and see if everything was okay and making sure this was okay. And he was absolutely great. I can't tell you, he didn't make any fussing. What are you doing? He didn't, he, it was all very cool and relaxing. Blow dried his hair after that. There was a thank you and went downstairs again. That was the first time I did it. So that was my experience. It was the second time that was the, it was the changing. <laughs> Leslie, it's a good thing you didn't, you didn't, it's a good thing you didn't walk out with a bag of hair. You'd never made it alive through the apple scruffs, that's for sure. That is right, but I could have been sitting in, in a castle. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> but, well, uh, I don't love... bother me where I am. I'm very happy where I am. I've got places in Spain, I'm right here, I'm okay. So, no, you know, you know, the other thing is, that was the old trust, you know, that was, um, that could have, um, you know, I always said to myself, I never want to ask for his autograph. I never want to take any hair. If ever I want to do anything, can I, I want, this is how I'm thinking. 
Um, I'd love to watch the Beatles record, uh, which later mm. did happen quite a few times, but that was in the back of my head. And um, uh, yeah, you know, I was offered, I used to get people ring up from America. There's this guy that owned these hotels at the Beatles um, um, stayed in this chain of hotels where he bottled the water, the swimming pool water that they went into <laughs> and selling it for whatever. And he rang me up and uh, I, I remember the figure. And we're going back in 1967. He said to me, I'll give you $100,000 if you supply me with Beatles hair. Remember? Wow. Remember? And I said, actually, I put the phone down there. I thought he was a, one of these parasites that, uh, that live <laughs> off the Beatles. I didn't, didn't like that. Stephanie. Anyway. I just love the story when you had that moment with him, when you were cutting his hair and Jane was doing a movie um, and he, he's, you know, he said, well, I want to go visit her, but it, it will cause too much commotion. It will disrupt the set. And you both looked at each other in the mirror and you're like, you know, we could change you up. We could cut this all off and transform you. And, you know, we've all had that moment with our hairdressers that you're like. Well, this is what? very strange because, um, as I say, it really was, uh, it was in September, 1966. Now, we have the professor there. When was it, August the 28th, that the Candlestick Park was the last concert? Uh, I will defer to Chachi, but it certainly is, is, is toward that week in August. Yeah, I think yes. it was August, yep. anyway, uh, late August. So August, we're talking about, what, two weeks after that, two, two and a half, three weeks after their final concert, and there, I was, and there was McCartney, um, a second time round, unshaven, slight little bit of a moustache, but you know, a bit sort of a, why not? He hasn't got to be, you know, from 19, whatever, 59, 60, 61, all the way through, they had to be dressed in beetle suits, beetle boots, shirt, tie, hair looking beautiful, you know, um, um, you just got to look at the hair on, on the album covers, everything before I got involved. But their, you know, hair was very, very important to them there. So it must have been really nice for all four of them. I only at the moment had met McCartney uh, to to wake up knowing that you haven't got to face an audience. You can be unshaven. You don't. Your hair can be a bit sort of not looking like a perfect beetle. You know, it must have been nice. Anyway, it was like that. And um, so during that time, I hadn't seen Jane for a bit, and I said to said to him, you know, conversation again. Um, I haven't seen Jane for a while. And he said, no, no, she's filming uh, down in Bristol. Um, she's doing um, um, uh, Mids Midsummer Night's Dream. And I said, oh, that's, that's interesting. I said, are you going to go down and uh, visit her while she's on set? He said, no, I can't do that. He said, because uh, uh, if I go down there, it distracts everything from Jane. And they'll say to me, when are you going to record again? Are you going to go back on stage again? You know, so I don't do that. That was just all part of this conversation, which a hairdresser has to a client. And I just sort of, as I was cutting, I said, what a shame. And I said, I suppose, so when she finishes, you'll go on holiday. Lisa be with her on holiday. You could do it. He said, can't do that either. Because the same thing, how can I go uh, on holiday? And everyone I know I'm a Beatle and it distracts it. So he's being quite negative. You know, and I'm sitting there thinking, my God, any if I could write a song, it's got to be, and I love her, you know, to the person you're with. I mean, you know, it's got to be a song. That's the beautiful words. And I'm thinking this and I've said, that's a real shame, you know. And I just casually just said, I don't know, why don't you go in disguise? And thinking it was just an off the cuff, you know, moment. And he said, what do you mean? And I, I didn't know what I meant actually. 
And I just said, um, I couldn't think about, you know, put a hat on or, or dress in stupid clothes. You know, so my automatic thing is hair. And I went, why don't you cut your hair off? Like short. <laughs> said it as a little joke. And he said, go on then. And I said, what? I said, I'm talking about cutting it short. And he said, go for it. Um, and I did. And what I did was that, Stephanie, if you have your hair cut short, you would hate the hairdresser to start from the front. Would you? you would hate to see that come off. You would want, yes. you would like the guy to gradually do it from the back and work his way gradually. So you see the hair coming down and then we will do the front and then that's it. I'm sweating already. <laughs> so I start cutting his hair from the back, working my way up, working my way up. Now, you know, the guy offered me $100,000 for little bits of hair. He could have offered me half a million dollars because there was quite a bit of hair coming off. And finally, I got to his ears and that was it. So I just went suddenly because his hair was about there. So suddenly cut it. That's that's the bit. That's that's when you know you're having a haircut. And I did the other side. No going back. <laughs> yeah, no going back. Exactly. And uh, I started doing this anyway. Um, his hair was really short. He did not look like the Paul McCartney that you'd see out on the uh, stage, on posters. He didn't even look like the Paul McCartney that when I walked in, because I said he had a, he was unshaven, little bits of moustache, hair sort of um, you know wasn't neat or tidy. Never did their hair neat and tidy anyway. And um, he said, "Okay." He didn't go, "Oh my God." Oh, oh, what have you done? It was as cool as a cucumber there. And my only problem was that I pictured, what about if somebody from, promoter from New York offers the Beatles $10 million to appear next week on stage? And, Paul, and he sees Brian Epstein, and Brian Epstein goes, Paul, what have you done? What have you done? <laughs> Leslie did it. It was my hairdresser. He forced me to have my haircut. So I forgot about it, left thinking, Oh my God, I've cut all his hair off. I never told the press what I was doing. I never even told the press I was doing the, his hair actually. Um, and about four weeks later, three weeks later, there's a big photo in the, in the paper where Paul McCartney's coming back from Kenya. And it said, Paul McCartney on holiday, coming back from safari holiday with Jane Asher and Mal Evans. Uh, and the press obviously said to him, how did you know who cut your hair? It was obvious. Or what did you do to your hair? And I imagined it would be male, that would be my PR. And he said, Oh, his hairdresser Leslie Cavendish did it. And with that, I mean, that was like a seal of approval, wasn't it? That was straight away. Well, how come you cut your hair? So I did, you know, I, I was officially allowed to, you know, why not he cut his hair? He was pictures everywhere. So uh, that got me. That got me that sort of little bit of trust and a bit of uh, okay with Paul and Jane. You know, Jane always sort of trusted me because I could have very easily blown it, and um, I had I was cutting hair of lots of journalists as well, and you know you know what journalists are like, <laughs> and <laughs> I thought no, you know just just keep keep just do it. You know one of the things is I, you know it's a bit like a. I never wanted to be a one cut wonder. I wanted to make an album. <laughs> you know, I wanted to cut all four of them. And I wanted to be able to say that, um, um, yeah, it's quite nice hanging around with the Beatles. Uh, you know, it's quite nice. I thought I didn't want to be for the sake of um, the hair.
There we go. When was it? 29th of August. 29th. One day out. Thank you. One day yes. out was. But there you go. So, um, yeah, that was a very interesting thing, Steph. <laughs> you have more than an album. You cut some of the most iconic hair. And I'm going to tell you as a kid, I used to study the Bee Gees hair and Barry Gibbs hair. I mean, iconic. And it's just incredible what you did, the technique and how you got everybody right, their personality, the best they could be. It was interesting because um, uh, I was lucky that we weren't in the 50s doing it because that was when backcombing and that was when you, you know, people like to dress their hair. Um, men's hair was short, you know, it's, you know, it was a bit like the old college cut. It wasn't much to men's hair then. It wasn't until, it wasn't until, you know, the Beatles and, you know, I mean, I can remember who did I, who would you, was it? always people like Perry Como, Frank Sinatra, great singers, but look at the hair, normal, straight, my dad's hair, had my dad's hair. And my dad used to do, or well, my dad was okay, it was my mum used to call me, um, you know, when she was angry with me, a long head lout, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, you, and you get, you know, and that's the influence of the Stones, the Beatles, you know, and, um, it was that sort of freedom. You could eventually go into a bank. You could eventually see people that uh, maybe a doctor even, you know, a bit more of a groovy doctor, suddenly having a longer hair, it changed everything. And that's the whole fascination of that period with the fashion, the politics, the music, it all fitted in. So time I got to do Barry's hair and, and the Beatles hair and anybody else's hair. Um, you did it the way you saw it. You, you know, the secret of a good men's, uh, for men anyway, was to make sure you wouldn't have, didn't look like you have a haircut. One of the worst things I can remember as a kid and people go and say, oh, you've had your haircut. Oh, you've had your haircut. You know, <laughs> I don't want people to say that. So that's how that look came about. Well, not only did you uh, get false trust, but you became a celebrity and you, in your industry. And, you know, I said this earlier too, and Professor, you can probably, well, everyone can comment on it. I mean, it was, a, in Swinging London, it was about music, it was about clothes, it was about drugs, I guess, but it was also about hair. So you were on uh, a trajectory. Oh, everything. <laughs> yeah, but, and, and like, for instance, like Twiggy, when she had her hair cut short, that started a whole craze of short hair. So you were in a, a real fashion industry yeah. that was very gratifying. Well, Twiggy set a great fashion. I mean, she, she's a North London girl, um, but Twiggy uh, made it acceptable for women to have, uh, didn't have to be looking like Jane Mansfield, you know, and you could have short hair. So she was a complete opposite of the Dinah Dawes, Jane Mansfield people. There's this thin girl, you know, with, you know, flat chested. And she was on the front cover of Vogue. How cool can that be for women who are sort of um, worried they're too thin or they're flat chested or they haven't got their hair? It must, she must be, she was an inspiration. Um, and that was just tricky. You know, then you go on the other hand, you get Jean Shrimpton, you know, um, who had, again, like Steph's hair, you know, that long, beautiful hair there. So oh you had you, you had contrasts of, of all these, um, of all these different styles, yeah. And there was besides Vidal, the, the guy that did uh, Triggy's hair was Leonard, and he was the he was the top stylist at Vidal's until he left. So you had all these people that sort of Vidal trained. That's how it used to be. 
You go to a hairdresser, yes, I'm Sassoon trained. That was your stamp. Wow. You know, Chachi, uh, in class, when I, I first bring up Twiggy, who was uh, posters and photos all over my, uh, my, my oldest sister's wall uh, when I was a kid. Um, but when I first mention her, it's in the context of looking at the um, uh, self-portrait uh, photograph of, uh, of, of Astrid and, uh, and her hairstyle, very much modeled on Oh, what had been going on in the French New Wave films and Gene Seberg and, and folks like that. Uh, you know, the, the artists and the filmmakers push it out to a certain to a certain boundary and then it and then it moves more into the uh, in the mainstream. So that's when I first bring up Twiggy is in the con construct or context of Astrid and uh, and her crew, which, of course, were very influential uh, hair wise uh, regarding the Beatles. And, and uh, you know, what Leslie's talking about, too, is is when he transforms McCartney for the, the sake so he can travel with his beloved. Um, a, a part of that too is, well, what the Beatles set in motion was, now you can do what you want with your hair. It doesn't even have to be a Beatles style. You, you can shape it the way you want it. And, and uh, whether it's you're doing it as a political act or as an artistic statement, uh, really sort of giving that, uh, there's Twiggy, I mean Astrid, <laughs> and uh, you know, giving yourself that that freedom because you know there's no better way to announce what you want to say to the world than than how you wear your hair so yeah this is how i first talk about twiggy is by way of astrid i gotta tell you uh professor david that's really good i i've seen many pictures of astrid and you and the and the, and the picture that you put up of twiggy i normally see another haircut because the, <laughs> the, the photographer was a guy called barry latigan he took all the pictures of twiggy he was leonard's best mate they used to go pulling birds together. I never, but they they were the best of mates, and um, they took loads loads of pictures. And that picture you just showed of Astrid, and the one you showed of Twiggy, is the same haircut practically. So yeah. the inspiration, yeah. Uh, yeah, as I say, you 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 work all this out. Hairdressers, it's a bit like I would imagine it's a bit like music. You know, is, is it an original song or did I hear it somewhere? Yeah. You know? Right. <laughs> uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's all about a great composition. <laughs> That's right. And I'm a fan of the dry cut too. That's how I get mine done. Like this is so validating for me because that's right. You get a good dry cut and that's how I mean, you do it. Look at Stephanie's hair, uh, Leslie. Is that's a pretty good looking haircut, right? Oh, I'm in the Florida humidity. Right. Got a great head of hair. <laughs> Fabulous. Beautiful hair. Oh my God, I'm so honored. I would, I would give. <laughs> Have you ever had your hair short? Back in the 80s, back when the new wave movement, I used to, my mother used to keep my hair very long. And one day I went to the salon, I was 16, and I'm like, let's do it. Cut it all off, dyed it red, chipped it all out, big blonde streaks in the front, big rooster, kind of big pompadour, and just punked it all out. And I did it once, <laughs> and that was it. But I love the, like, with Paul, like, be like, you want to go there? You have that moment with your hair. We can do that. Do we understand each yeah, other? Good. Let's it go. Is. Let's it go. Is. It is. What, what, what I thought was uh, interesting is where he was at himself mentally, you know, for he must, you know, for someone to say, yes, I cut all your hair off. I mean, can you imagine doing that to Mick Jagger? Don't think so. I don't, I don't, I don't no. even think Mick Jagger wanted to go on safari. I think he would... Uh, he would, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe no one suggested it to him. He should have come to me, and I would have suggested it. But um, 
<laughs> you know, for Paul McCartney to have his hair cut off and not really give a damn, not really sort of go, oh, and I'm, you know, I would, I'd be very happy to say to you, McCartney went, oh my God, what have you done? And I say, don't worry about it, it'll be all right. <laughs> not a thing, not a thing. So he must have been very relieved, like all the other, the three other Beatles, um, to actually be himself. And I always think that, that when that 29th of August time, when they unplugged their guitars, is when they took their ties off. You know, they didn't have to wear a tie anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, that was it. I can be who, what I want to be. Maybe I'd like to be Paul McCartney rather than a Beatle. And I imagine that went for Lennon and I'm going to go and dig deep what, what, what Paul McCartney's all about. Um, you know, and it must have been a relief, you know, those yeah. guys being together, writing songs, you know, interesting. Now, now Professor, uh, in, in Leslie's book, and I agree with him, uh, if he didn't suggest cutting Paul's hair short, Paul wouldn't have left the house <laughs> and he wouldn't have gone on safari and he wouldn't have had the idea to create the Sgt. Pepper album. <laughs> well, you know, uh, uh, I think uh, one chapter ends certainly just with the, the, uh, the phrase snip, snip. And uh, that's, that's, that's the sort of, uh, as Leslie mentions as well, the, the snip, snip might be the beating of the butterfly's wings. And so the butterfly effect takes effect. But, you know, I look at that moment with Paul in the chair and I'll go back to the very beginning, Leslie, of, of, your, of your narrative that, you know, that wouldn't have come about if you weren't, shall I dare I say, an extrovert and, and chatty. And, and you know how to upsell. You know, no one's going to leave your salon without an armful or a bag full of product as well to take home. That that's what set you apart from some of the other stylists is that you knew how to sell and you knew how to chat. And even if you felt yourself, you were a little bit insecure early on about your technical abilities, right? The, the fingers and everything. But boy, you could talk someone into and out of any type of hairstyle. And so that's where I think that that's a great heart of the narrative, uh, uh, Leslie, is that, you know, you, you, you use that, that personality to gain people's confidence, not in a shallow way, but in a way that, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to somebody like, like they're a friend. I think part of that comes from, you know, hanging out at football matches and screaming along and, you know, and I think, uh, Chachi, I'd like to link this to when, when Leslie admits that maybe um, meditation wasn't for him. Uh, as, a, as an extrovert, you can't be that introverted for that long. <laughs> so I think that, you know, the way that he approached his profession, like, well, how am I going to do this? I've never really done this before. I know I will. I will gain people's confidence by, just like the Beatles, if they weren't initially, according to George Martin and others, technically proficient, they sure as hell were charming. So, Leslie, you're very charming. And I think maybe that, that may have set a lot of these things in motion. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I, you know, I come, from a, I come from a mad Jewish family, you know, um, uh, where my mother was working. Uh, my mother is, is a great, great, great. She's 96 years old, still around. She Yay. is amazing, amazing sales lady. And her, you know, she, whenever things could happen, she would always say, you don't know how to, I could sell, she used to say, I could sell snow to the Eskimos. That's how good she is uh, selling. And I used to watch that. I used to love it. I used to love the, I used to have shoe shops. And, you know, no one ever went out with one pair of shoes. It was, you know, no one ever heard of two for one. My mum used to say, like, if you buy two, you get it, you know, 
And I and I thought, oh, okay, okay. And I just think, gosh, she really knows how to sell. You know, this guy didn't even come in uh, for, mm. he only came in for one pair of shoes, goes out with two. Uh, there's a technique to it and there's a way that I, that I like. It's, it's not, um, it's not sort of a bartering, you know, I'll, you know, how much is that? I'll take that. It's not so much that, you know, I'm not really too much into that. It's just that, you know, if you've got you, if you have your own business or, you know, we were told at Riddell's that, yes, you, you, you pay people come in and have their hair set and cut. If they've got a Riddell cut, then you can set it. If you think the client, um, he told it, this is what he told us. If you think the client doesn't compliment a soon cut, tell her to go down to so-and-so in the Dorchester Hotel. And many times we had to say to clients, I'm really sorry, but, you know, I don't want my hair cut. Well, you know, can I just say to you that I could improve? I don't want my hair cut. Okay. And once she really made her mind, I said, actually, I can suggest a hairdresser just down the road who would do your hair anytime you like. What do you mean? You go, I've got the money, you know? Said, Sorry, you don't compliment. I want you to walk out of here and we want to be complimented. So many a time, we have to say it to the client. Okay, so with that, we used to then, a lot of clients need um, uh, treatment, hair treatments. Not everyone's hair is perfect. There is an old little uh, trick that you I was taught that if I was with your hair, Stephanie, there, and I would, and if you just get hold of your fingers and you just go like that, it will make a little noise, okay? <laughs> and you would say, well, your hair's very dry at the ends, which it would be. And then you say, yeah, okay. Say, well, to get that look, that really lovely Gene Shrimpton look or, or Twiggy look or whatever look you want, you know, Vidal always believed in healthy, shiny hair. That was his, that. that's what he went on about. And they'll go, oh, okay, fine. And then you then you say, okay, so I'll, I'll book a treatment up for you now. So, you, you know, treatments cost, I don't know, whatever it costs then. So Love me uh, a the, sec the secret is that, madam, um, you obviously realize one treatment won't do the trick. Mm. So, so there were the next thing, you're, be, you're feeding someone, and you're saying, well, what do you reckon? And you're telling the truth because one treatment wouldn't do the trick. But, you know, they do a contract where you get 10 for 12. Really? And that's what we used to do. And I was fantastic. So when I worked with Roger Thompson, he earned so much money on, you know, I am the man, for the moment he touches her hair, I have to take her to the backwash to do her hair. That's when I get into motion that your hair's dry. What shampoo do you want? Do you want egg shampoo? Uh, Non-dandruff. You know, there's a million shampoos we had at Vidal's and you know, oh, madam, you've got dry hair. So we use an egg shampoo. But you know something, if you had a treatment upstairs, it would be so much healthier for him, better for him. Really? Okay. And he used to, his wage packet, you know, not me, you know, his wage packet on commission was fantastic. It was when I started hairdressing, you know, realizing that, yeah, I don't need some junior to tell me, to tell my client, I'll tell him. And um, yeah, that comes back from, um, I, I love it. I get a kick out of it. <laughs> I like it. Treatments are everything. <laughs> love me a good treatment. Yeah, but it's true. You do need good treatments, and that's it. Um, yeah. That was Vidal's uh, motto. <laughs> Sexy, shiny hair. Well, I will tell you, uh, Leslie, I have a haircut tomorrow. This is my COVID cut. I haven't had a haircut in a long time. Um, but when I go... I tease it up sometimes, like a base. Yes. It, <laughs> it looks like you've got great hair. I mean, really. But I think I like that. Give it a good judge. <laughs> 
That's yeah. the, the shush. That's it's it. all there. Um, How are you going to have it? I'm sorry? How are you going to have your haircut? Um, the same person has been cutting it for 15 years and she knows what to do. And okay. just goes around. Uh, but for me, when I, and, and listen, everyone knows the relationship between a person and their psychiatrist and a person and their hair stylist is almost the same. But when I go, I don't want to say anything. I don't feel like chit-chatting. Uh, I just want to sit there and get my hair cut and leave. Uh, I don't know how Steph approaches her haircut if she talks oh, wow. to her hairstylist. Um, <laughs> we do the most. <laughs> but uh, you and you eventually ended up cutting everyone's hair. More John, Paul, and George than Ringo, because Maureen, we would cut Ringo's hair. How were each of the Beatles? Were they chatty? Were they uh, quiet? Uh, did they did they uh, admit things to you? Tell you secrets that you should. Okay, have? so. You just said something, right? So I'll, I'll give you the same scenario. What you just said is how I used to approach George Harrison. Okay. So George Harrison, um, we had a shop. They opened up a shop in the King's Road, remember 161 King's Road, Chelsea, Apple Tailoring, which was dandy fashions before. And I had this salon uh, downstairs. And because McCartney lived in town, uh, the other three lived in Virginia Water. They, they came up. And John and uh, George always, when he had a meeting up at Savile Row, you know, I don't know that he's meeting someone like called Alan Klein. I've got no idea he's meeting or the stress he could be under, or I didn't know um, how his marriages was going or his relationships were going. The guy, he was a client. He came up and he said, come in and he would sit down and the same thing. George, we used to wash his hair. I used to get my sister to wash his hair. I had a, a, um, a manicurist called Lollipop, believe it or not. <laughs> Her name was Lollipop. That's and she had, she had She had originally blonde punk hair. You know, she was like a, she was like a, a mother Debbie Harry. You know, she was, um, she looked a bit different. Uh, nice girl. And George used to have a manicure. Uh, or if he, did, he didn't have a, if he didn't have a manicure, he would, I would be blow drying his hair. I'd put on some music. Um, and we, we wouldn't really say much, you know, I'd ask him, you know, conversation would be, um, the major conversation with, a, with me with a Beatle was music. So I, I couldn't feel that, I, I always felt I had to say, are you recording anything new or are you writing anything new? You know, that's what I always wanted to say. Then. And I think anybody that writes, that's in a position to do that, likes to show off and say, well, actually, yes, I am, you know, why not? Um, yeah, I'm you know playing uh, I'm playing this sitar, uh, really sitar. Yeah, this is Ravi Shankar, and okay, you know I happened to go and see Ravi Shankar at the Albert Hall. I was informed two nights ago, um, which I did remember. I went with my cousin, and um, so he was telling me about you know he's doing uh, you know uh, play, learning to play a, guitar, a sitar, you know getting into Indian music, which was um, interesting to hear. At least you know this wasn't known that uh, said it went on the album, you know, could easily have gone to one of my press guys. I go, you know, George Harrison's uh, playing, you know, check him out with a sitar. Um, so we used to talk about that, but he also was very quiet. Um, I didn't realize he had a lot going on in his life at the time. Right? So uh, uh, having your hair dried and blow dried is very relaxing. So, you know, as far as he's concerned, he had really good hair, um, uh, you know, it was, it was a very quiet, 
it was a very George Harrison moment, cutting his hair. It wasn't anything more than, than that. Um, same thing, I cut his hair at, uh, uh, at EMI, Abbey Road Studios, EMI actually. Um, where there's a picture of me cutting George Harrison, I think you've seen it. And I was told by the photographer that was in the middle of a recording session. I don't get it. I, I always thought before I knew that, that he had, it, it was taken at the salon. No, it was done at Abbey Road Studios in between the recording session. He has asked me to do his hair. So he's put his guitars down. He's walked away from them all. He's come upstairs. And then am I the, well, it, may have been in, it may have been in the sound room. I did it, but they certainly didn't have the dressing rooms there. They didn't have a hairdresser sat on there. And there I am cutting George Harris's hair. So that's an interesting thought. How come his head got into that? You know why? It's relaxing. I want to have my own thoughts. And mm -hmm. let, let me have someone to do my hair. Let me have a think. That was his way of doing it. Um, uh, John was, uh, John was always, uh, John's hair was always being done at the Apple offices of Savile Row. And that was like, um, uh, he was on speed. You know, he would, you know, I always picture, you know, the Beatles when they came in individually to the sun, uh, to the, uh, offices. So you'd get Ringo come in, it'd be high and, you know, smiling. You know, you know, they didn't have this mega security. You had to be two receptionists, one guy there. Anybody could have got in there really, if, if you, if you knew what to do. And I always picture that, yeah, it would be, oh, hi, 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 Ringo. And then Paul would come in. Oh, hi, Paul. George would come in. He would float through then, you know. And there's the receptionist. And John would come in. It would be, oh, oh the boss has walked in, you know. What mood's he in today? You know, you're always felt, you always know, the edge, you know. The edge comes in and really, oh, my God. And um, I was, you know. I got to know Derek Taylor. He was like my PR. He was fantastic. Derek Taylor, the press officer. Uh, he was like, they called him the fifth Beatle, him with Brian Epstein, you know, to get through to the Beatles, you know, Derek Taylor was the man, a really lovely, charming guy. And um, I used to cut his hair and then he would, you know, that's, he would then turn and say, Leslie, go and cut so-and-so's hair, you know, or Peter Asher would be there. Leslie, go and do that one's hair. These people were really famous, but they weren't famous at the time. And, I was, remember standing there, um, standing by um, Derek. Derek used to sit in a great big wicker chair, you know, with, you know, they used to drink vodkas in the morning, joints, you know, they used to call them B-52s, the joints, you know, that's what it was called. <laughs> you used to have a guy there rolling these B-52s, you know, and then you had a guy sitting on a, on a filing cabinet um, with his legs crossed. I mean, you know, and they're getting paid, you know, they're getting paid, these guys. And then you had you know, Richard Diallo, you know, you know what, what, what's your job? Oh, you could be the house hippie. You know, yeah. that's, how, that's how what it was like up there. And when John came up, um, obviously he's past Derek and he's, he, you know, he must have looked at everybody around. I'm sure he knows who the faces around that time. And he said, uh, he actually said, he pointed, he said, who's he? And he said, uh, oh, that's the guy that cuts um, uh, Paul's hair. He said, really? He said, well, send him in and cut mine, will you? <laughs> and uh, he said, uh, I think John wants you to go and cut his hair. I said, well, he wants me to cut his hair? He said, yeah. So I went into this great big, um, in, in, into the boardroom. This great big boardroom they had there. And there was John Lennon sitting there with a the journalist, first time. Who would let you do that hair with, with, with the journalists around? You know. And then the other time, I thought it was a journalist. And there was a, or, you know, a, a small oriental lady there, all in black. And when I'm trying to cut his hair, you know, he kept moving his head forward. I'm holding, holding his hair there. 
<laughs> and instead of um, instead of this person saying, you know, what's your latest record or what you're doing, what you're doing, what you're doing, all he kept saying was, I don't understand. I don't understand what you're talking about. And he's moving his head, and I'm saying, uh, John, I'm not even sure if I said Mr. Lennon. I'm not quite sure on that. But anyway, I pulled his hair back, and um, I realised that this this was an interesting conversation. He had quite long hair, and I wanted to trim the ends off. It could have taken me 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes at the most. I was so fascinated, I stayed there for half an hour, <laughs> checking his hair and doing this like it was the most serious haircut in the world. And he had no... I'm not even sure if you knew I was there. Uh, I, I was standing behind his chair. He's talking to this lady, looking down, because he had a high chair and she was small. And all it was, I don't understand what you're talking about. I didn't know who she was. You know, that was Yoko Ono. Uh, um, wow. You know, and that's how I used to cut his hair. You would think it would be a bit personal. Say, Leslie, actually, go away. I don't want you now. You know, yeah. no, didn't give a damn. Didn't give a damn. And the book is filled with so many stories. And before we wrap up, we just have a couple of more questions. Um, it's filled with so many great stories. The book is called The Cutting Edge, the story of the Beatles hairdresser who defined an era. Uh, you, you thought you upset uh, John. You did an interview because you were becoming famous in your circle uh, there. You were very hip-looking, swinging London, London type. And you had all these little serendipities, little things happening, like when you got pulled over by the policeman. And that changed your life. You ended up moving into London, I think. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, um, Chelsea. And so people wanted to interview you. You were cutting the Beatles' hair amongst other celebs. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you even cut Tony Curtis's hair. So, um, yeah. So you did an interview, and the woman asked you, um, Describe everybody's hair. Who, which beetle is going bald? Well, no, that wasn't that she said. She just okay. said to me, um, Caroline Boucher wrote for Disc Magazine. She was a regular client of mine. And I thought I was Mr. Flash Harry uh, streetwise. Nothing could get past me because I know it. And I got really caught. She just said to me, she said, do you want to come and have a coffee? Um, I'd like to ask you a few questions about the Beatles. So I said, yeah. No problem. And I said, okay. And she sat down, very nice, had a coffee. It was in the Picasso, very famous place in the uh, King's Road coffee bar, closed down a few years ago. And we sat there and she said, you know, you must be fascinated, Leslie, to cut, cut the Beatles' hair. The, you know, um, the texture of their hair must be great. She said, can you give me an idea of what their texture's like? So I said, yes, yeah, of course I'll give you an idea what their texture's like. She said, and uh, just... Just, just, just think a little bit beyond that. Um, maybe you'd think who's got the, you know, in years to come that maybe they would lose their hair the most. So I said, I don't know that. Fine. So we then said, okay, well, what's George's hair like? Well, George has got luscious, lovely hair and explain mm. that. And uh, Paul's got lovely hair and Ringo's, yeah, Ringo's hair was, was really good, lovely, could maneuver it around. And, uh, and she said, uh, and Lennon? So I said, yes, all right. And that was the hook. That's the <laughs> journalist's hook. Yeah, it's all right, is it? Just all right. So I said, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's good. I've already said it now. And she said, but not as thick as the others then. So I said, well, no, the texture of his hair is much thinner. There you go again, Leslie. Yeah. <laughs> much thinner than the others. Okay, she said. And um, so you'd think that maybe in 20, 30 years' time, 
that John would have lost his hair the most and probably could be bald? And I said, well, I don't know about that. I don't think so. Like, maybe. She said, but you said, you said his hair was thinner than the others. I said, well, if you look at it like that, I, I imagine that if someone, you are going to lose your hair, he would be the first to lose his hair. That's what I said. He would be the first to lose his hair. Thank you very much, Leslie. Another coffee. I thought, did the interview. Didn't think much of it, actually. <laughs> this, this magazine comes out on a Friday. And uh, I got a phone call early during, either the week before or week, whatever it was, Derek Taylor rang me up late at night. Now, Derek Taylor doesn't ring me up late at night to um, come and ask me to cut someone's hair. Um, <coughs> something, something wasn't right. And he said, Leslie, what have you said to the, um, the journalists uh, um, on, to this magazine? Straight away, it's, it's, I, did, I did that. When did I do that? I did that last week. Okay. Um, well, nothing, uh, Derek. Well, on the radio, they're advertising that John Lennon's going bald. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, oh, don't be so stupid. So he said, I'm telling you, John Lennon's going bald. Buy the newspaper, Beatles hairdresser, and John Lennon's going bald. And I went, oh, my God, whatever. And the following day, I'm now thinking, now I'm going to have to really, I'm going to get the wrath of uh, Lennon now. This is it. You know, you know, it's very important hair, isn't it? You know, if you're going to lose it, you lose it. You don't want to be told you're going to lose it. <laughs> and the worst part about it, you would like your hairdresser to tell you if you're going to lose it, you know, if you, if you were that worried about it. And I went down to the salon and uh, I'm waiting for this phone call. I know, I'm gonna, you know anybody that's going to lose their hair in that position is going to give you a call, you know, either tell you to uh, F off or what you're talking about or whatever, whatever. And the phone rings and it's Lennon. He could tell his voice. And then I went, hello, John. And, and he, he said, what's this about me going bald? Straight, straight, straight to the cup. And eyes went into one. I, you know, it sounded like I was going for ages, but I just kept apologizing. I said, John, you know, she took me, you know, um, you're not going bald. Um, I promise you, I promise you. And actually, John, she took me out of context. And with that, he said to me, don't everyone well tell me that she took you out of context. Look what that effing journalist did to me. He said, we're bigger than Jesus Christ. <laughs> so he, then he laughed. And I thought, oh, he's made light of it. You know, he's, he's now making that comparison. So my apology, I didn't have to apologize. He knows that you could be taken out of context. And I thought, oh, okay. And then, he, then we finished that. And then he said to me, Leslie, I want to ask you a question. So I said, what's that? He goes, am I really going effing bald? <laughs> I said, actually, no, you're not. He said, well, come over here straight away, because if it's falling on the floor, I want you to stick it together again. So I had to get in a cab, I went over to Sunderland, <laughs> and we had a laugh about it. So there you go. That yes. was, uh, and it was, I mean, I tell you, it's, uh, the headline is, I've got it, still got it. Beatles hairdresser Leslie Cavendish says John Lennon's going bald. Not only was it on the a full page, on the second page, it was on this first page, on the, on the, on the front page, with a heading. John Lennon is going bald, said Beetle Hairdresser. Wow. There you go. <laughs> For everyone to see. Pretty wow. amazing. You know, so years later, I was proved right. Say that again, Leslie. Years later, I was proved right. You, you were right. Longer, you just look at him in the plastic Ono band. Before we wrap up, let's, um, <laughs> I want to talk about when you cut Barry and Robin's hair. You were cutting uh, of the Gibb brothers. You were cutting their hair when they weren't talking, correct? And before. 
Yeah, when Vince Maloney, uh, it was a Vince Maloney came well, and Colin Peter. There was Vince Maloney, Colin Peterson, and the three other Bee Gees, and Vince became my mate. We used to go around together, um, uh, Vince, and he used to get frustrated saying, you know, Vince, Vince wanted to write. Vince was a songwriter, but you could never. You, there was no way he was going to get in there, um, and that's why he eventually left. And uh, but yeah, after that. Um, Barry used to live in Eaton Square, just um, uh, just up the road, which is very near Sloan Square. I was the other, uh, I was down the other end. I used to take my dog Ernie, which is um, my book is dedicated to my rock and roll spaniel Ernie. And Ernie is the biggest groupie in the world because not only did he play with uh, or whatever they got up to with uh, Martha, he certainly was having a good old uh, uh, love thing with Barnaby. You know, great big uh, dog, and. Um, I used to go around and cut Barry's hair at his apartment. It's great. He used to play me um, uh, acoustic guitar, and he really did love to play. You know, if I said to him, "What, what, what do you um, uh, record, um, wrote?" He would write. He would just go with a whole list. I went around there one day, and there was Richie Havens um, was there, and the both of them sat there and played guitar. I'm sitting in the corner. Um, we all got. We were all having. We were all quite nicely uh, uh, mentally okay. And I'm sitting there watching Richie Havens and uh, Barry Gibb just playing acoustic guitar. It was great. And he was really easy. And his hair, he's, talk about hair. He's got fantastic hair and brilliant <laughs> hair. Um, and then we had Robin. And then in between all this, um, they had, uh, I don't know if it was artistic, it was somebody didn't want a song. I don't know what happened with the Gibb brothers there, but there, were, there was some, um, uh, something went on. And Barry and Robin were not talking and Robbie used to live over in Notting Hill Gate. So I was going, you know, I used to go and do Robin's hair who had the complete opposite to uh, Barry's hair. He had a really high forehead, very thin hair. And um, he definitely was going to go bald. There was no two ways about it. But I used to comb his hair uh, forward. I've got pictures of me forward. I also used to go to the top of the pops. Um, they used to record, used to come on a Thursday night. They, they used to mime on a, on a Wednesday. Oh my God, what an experience to watch the Bee Gees do it and how they prepared for it and how they seduced the, the girls in the audience with, you look at those early ones, Barry, you know, singing with his, oh, he's stretching. I mean, unbelievable, unbelievable. I used to watch it. I used to sit and laugh, you know. Um, so Robin used to say to me, you know, again, and he said, listen to this song. And he played me his new song and it was um, Saved by the Bell, which is... Um, Amazing. He, I remember him playing to me and uh, I just thought, God, the voice, how did he get that voice? And you can see, you know, because it was an individual thing. Um, yeah, they, they, that, was, that was a very nice experience. I didn't get on too well with Morris, I must admit. I, I, I could have, it could have been the two BG as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> well, uh, Steph and I, uh, well, Steph loved the Bee Gees from day one. And when we got married, uh, our wedding song was won by the Bee Gees. And we interviewed Barry together, and Steph has known them for a long time. And Barry did something really extraordinary for us. He played the Boston Garden uh, about seven years ago, maybe on May fifteenth, and we were hanging. In, uh, and he, we were hanging uh, backstage, and they were very excited. Barry was very excited that Stephanie was coming. We got there, and Sir Richard, uh, what, what's his name, Steph? Dick Ashby was waiting. Richard, Richard Dick Ashby comes out, Stephanie, you're here. Barry wants to talk to you. So we had a nice conversation. And so we're in the audience of the show, places filled, thousands of people. And it was his first show of his solo tour. 
And this is what happened. If uh, David Yaz, can you play the audio, please? This okay, audio. Uh, I want to dedicate this song in particular to Stephanie and Chachi. Chachi! And they've become really dear friends. <laughs> this is the... Okay, Dave. Okay, thank you. <laughs> saying it again. Uh, it was one of the greatest moments for both of us, but certainly for Steph, she's a Love total Bee Gees fan. So, Steph, any Bee Gees related questions for Mr. Cavendish? Always, always a gentleman. No, I just think what you brought up was very interesting. As you, as you were saying, Leslie, you know, they were broken up. Robin was doing um, Robin's Reign and Saved by the Bell, and they weren't speaking to each other. All the fighting was in the press and inferences, just like you had with John Lennon. Like, well, I, I didn't really say that. And then the headline is he's, you know, has compromised with his hair. And so they weren't really talking, but there you were. Like a lot of us Bee Gees fans would be so terribly interested. There you were going back and forth between the two. I was, back with the forwards. It was, uh, it, yeah, you got to, yeah, because. My, my, I didn't think of it that way. When you say it, that's great. I mean, again, I used to have the press saying, what did Barry say about Robin? Or what did Robin say about them? Nothing. No, no comment, nothing, nothing. Just let me get on with it. Let me listen to these songs in peace. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they, what a talent. I mean, you know, Barry, you know, I just look at it I, before we go. I always think how lucky we all are. Or, and, and I look at myself and think, if I was around when Chopin, Mozart, Beethoven, and they were my mates, and I was going around cutting their hair, and I would say, God, that's the most beautiful, beautiful piece that you, that, that you just um, uh, wrote. And, um, it, you know, they'll be playing that for years, you know, hundreds of years later, you'll hear a Mozart, Beethoven. You're now listening to Lennon and McCartney, and you're throwing a gib as well. I'll throw in a gib that, you know, in years to come, it'll be the same thing. Hundreds of years time, where people will say, do you remember that Lennon and McCartney song? Do you remember that Barry, the, the Gibb Brothers songs? You know, who's today? You, you know, you're not gonna, I can't think of many, if there will be, if there is still that prolific songwriter that sings at the same time, a singer-songwriter, that will be there for years and years and years to come. You'll get the odd ones, you get, you get some of the Oasis, you know, the Gallagher guys, They've got a couple they, that they will be played forever, but you never have a catalogue like the Gibbs and the Lennon and McCartney. Uh, so I feel great. You know, what a, what, a, what a life to be in when they're around, you know, rather. And you've got four of them as well, <laughs> four Beatles, yeah. five B Bee Gees or three Bee Gees, two Bee Gees, one Bee Gees. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's very, very strange, but it's, uh, it's, 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 it's a privilege to have been around them and, and listen to their music. What, what a great story. Now, Professor, you know, the professor teaches freshmen every year about the Beatles, as, as right. like Leslie says, it's going to go on for years and years and years. Uh, any closing uh, uh, comments, Professor Gallant? Well, you know, I think it's, it's um, uh, fantastic to, uh, to tell students uh, or even give them a few snippets, no pun intended, from, from Leslie's narrative where um, just where he is at certain moments. Uh, there aren't too many folks who weren't part of actually putting the records together who can say that they were in a, a Beatle residence in Abbey Road studio 
on the Magical Mystery Tour bus, for goodness sakes, right? And then over in the Apple building. I mean, you don't have that many people you can just sort of draw a line through, except people like Derek Taylor or even, you know, Brian Epstein for a while or George Martin. And so just sort of having been at those places at that time is, is quite extraordinary, you know, and, and having done some of the things that were done, whether it was I'll give my hand to meditation or I'll smoke this or I'll drop that, but no, thank you, never again. And I'm sorry, went over to fight in, didn't realize it would only be a six-day war, but went over to defend the homeland, for crying out loud. And still, in all of that, um, being willing to be a great fan of a, of a second, third-tier division uh, a football team, um, and uh, which is actually if my, my wife's a, a favorite football team. Why? Because for about half a year, when she was only a two-year-old, she lived in Golders Green. And just heard and knew of of uh, Queens Park Rangers. So, oh, uh, <laughs> so I mean, uh, on top of all of that, you know, we have a great football fan. You know, I don't want to show our colors here, being you know a a, a long serving a, a lifelong Red Sox fan. You know, oh, uh, the man who owns the Red Sox, of course, owns uh, Liverpool FC. Now that's kind of in the stratosphere of of English football clubs, but. Um, I think that something like that shows that you know someone can have a talent in their profession and their passions. And uh, Leslie's making all those great comparisons. I was doing this and cutting hair, but you know, that was that first moment with Paul McCartney was absolutely tied to me going to see a football match. So I think things like that are fantastic. That students understand that when they're learning about history, that people are also their day-to-day -day lives have a great role in that too. So that's why I think it's a great, it's a great story. And not just a great story, because Chachi, we've heard a lot of Beatles stories but it's also told very well okay and um and i think that that's a that's just a, a testament to who uh, to who leslie is so um uh, i think it's also it, it's great that students can understand the importance that george martin raved about and brian epstein raved about i always tell them when the beatles were able to ascend from one level to another there was a bit of luck involved but what people kept on saying was geez they're awfully charming so i tell them that that's an important quality to develop Maybe you have it, maybe you don't. Leslie, you certainly have it. So, but let me just say one thing. Um, again, if any of your students would like to ask any questions, you feel you want to ask any questions on their behalf, uh, please do that. Um, I, I feel that um, it's a bit like having vintage cars. You know, you know, people that get these old vintage cars, they meet up once a year, twice a year to show off their beautiful cars. You know. Um, we can't do Beatle conventions at the moment and people, you know, so we do this situation, but you're in a unique position that you're teaching students. So I'm, you know, if I was one of your students and I obviously want to go on the Beatle course, I'd want to ask me some questions. <laughs> yeah. You know, so please feel free <laughs> to, um, to, you know, to, I don't mind at all. So I promise you, not a problem. Oh, you're very kind. Stephanie, all what right. did you want to add to this? Well, I think that's really the message and all, despite all the fun and the glamour of it, the, the real message and the, and the lesson in the book, one of the great lessons you teach is that you, your strategy and your wherewithal to just shoot for the top. When your friend, when you started when you were 15 and you're like, gee, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life and I'm trying to figure this out and your friend was working in London. You didn't sit there and go all go around the local shop. You went straight to Vidal Sassoon and you conjured up this idea because you're like, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? And you grabbed the bowl from your wood shop class and said, this is kind of the most creative thing I've done. So I'm going to bring that and talk about it. 
And as crazy as that was, that's what made them say a week later, hey, why not this guy? Bring him back in. And that's a great lesson. You shot right to the top and you got in. And from there, your comportment, your composure, your discretion working with all these artists, that's what kept your success going. And, you know, my grandmother used to have a saying, keep yourself about yourself and you won't have any trouble. And that's what you did. And that's how you got their confidence. And then to hold your nerves and cut their hair, their crowning glory. It's just a remarkable achievement of so many, you know, skill sets that came together to, 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 for you to have that kind of success. And I think it's a very inspirational story, whether you're into hair or celebrities or, or just making your way in life. Always just be yourself. You know, that's it. I tell that to my, I've got two, uh, 22 year old kid and a 30 year old, you know, just be yourself. And also never, you know, if you stay at home, you ain't going to meet anybody, you know, go out there. You want to, you want to be a pilot, you know, Go, we have Ryanair, go for Bridget Airway, go for anybody. I don't know, just, you, if you, they'll certainly tell you if you ain't got the talent, you'll certainly get a knockback. So um, why not go? Why not, why not do it? Try to do it. So, um, yeah. Well, I, I, will, I will tell you, Leslie, I said this earlier in an email to you, how I was really sad at the end of the book. I was very, very sad. And I, I sat here and I said, why am I so upset? Is, am I upset because the book is over? It's, it's The story ended. It was such a fun ride. It was a roller coaster. Am I sad because the 60s were over? Because when it, I remember when 1970 came around, just things changed. You know, it was like overnight. The mm -hmm. 60s were over. The, and now we're in the 70s. Uh, the Beatles yeah. broke up. I mean, and Leslie, even you, you left the industry, right? You stopped cutting hair. Yep, I, I, I did stop cutting hair. I, I suddenly, you know, on, on a business side of life, I didn't make the best business decision. Um, I could have, I was, I was single, you know, behind, I um, hope you don't mind me saying this, behind every good man, there's a very good, strong woman. And they yeah. do the pushing. And uh, <laughs> um, I had too many people... <laughs> I didn't have one person push me. I had about loads. So I really, and in the end, I didn't have anyone pushing me. So uh, today, you know, lovely. I've got a lovely lady. If I met my lady now, when during that time, we've probably been divorced again and again, Leslie. Don't say that. But anyway, um, but we would have had an industry. You know, I would have gone into. One of the problems is that when you do cut people's hair like that, they don't want anybody else to cut your hair. So you've got to open up a salon like Sassoon's, that you delegate. And you want to go to Sassoon, um, you're going to pay the earth. You want to go to a really good stylist at Sassoon's, who's half the price, you'll go to them. That's how you build, build a clientele up. Um, I could have done that. I could have, you know, anybody wants to wants me to cut their hair, it'll cost you a lot of money, okay? But I didn't, I, I could have had that salon that day. But you know what? I had such a good time, you know, and, and the, the, you know, the timing was, the time it was good for me to leave. I didn't, who else, you know, I started doing freelance photography, um, freelance hairdressing. I was doing some film work. It wasn't quite the same. And also as well, um, maybe, you know, I, I did quite well on, on a property and I, I, I did save it. I was single. And so I started playing tennis more. I started going to my favorite cricket ground which is at the, in, in Cavendish Avenue. Um, I did used to leave my dog at McCartney's as well. 
I actually did that a few times, left it with the housekeeper, believe it or not. <laughs> um, and I go to my football matches and, uh, and then we had a family business that was shoes, um, that there was a problem there, somebody, somebody was ill. So I sort of took that over. Then with that, I saw how much money um, John Crittle was making at Apple Tailoring, you know, to buy some. So I opened up a boutique. And where the luck came about, uh, it was in South London, the old Kent Road. And the nearest football team there was, is Millwall. And Millwall Football Club are feared by everybody because they, they were racist, they were, they, they, they were aggressive. But you know what was good about it? They changed the fashion. They started being punks, mods. They were wearing Dr. Martin boots. They were wearing two-tone suits. They were wearing um, um, uh, short trousers tapered up, uh, mohair blue and, and, and green. Who had them all? Me. Our family had the rights of Dr. Martin boots in South wow. London. So I, we sold so many Dr. Martins, eight leg, 10 leg. And um, I got to know the people around there. They really, they, they, I moved from Chelsea, which was like the fashion buzz of the arty people, to streetwise fashion. And just happened to be in that place. My parents had shops down the market, um, East Street Market, which is really famous because um, our shop was uh, two doors from where Charlie Chaplin was born. And if you read the opening of Charlie Chaplin's book, he said, when I was in East Street Market, that was literally two, two doors away. In my book, I, 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 if anyone hasn't read that bit, where Charlie Chaplin walks right by. And I went, right. oh, my God. And he just went, <laughs> came over to be knighted. Right. Um, you know, so it's, an, it's you know, Michael Caine was born around the corner. You know, it was that part of London, South London, they call it, you know, yeah. South. And, um, and, but the fashion came, it was lucky. It was a real fluke that that fashion came over. So... Um, yeah, you know, and that meant that um, became sort of a business there. So yeah, we. Wow. I, I look back at it and I think, did I enjoy that? You know, or did I? Should I have stayed in hairdressing? The one, one last thing: the guy in hairdressing, uh, one of Adele's top, top guys, um, his name was uh, Warren, and he used to um, he used to stand behind a chair. And he, and he had every, I mean, literally his clientele was, was the billboard of beauty, you know, and I think he, whoever dropped from number one, number two, it was all because of him, you know, and he was up and down. He went through that hit parade like no was, you know, I was watching it. And he ended up with no clients in the end, but he always said to me, Leslie, make sure you don't stand over a chair at 30 years old. And I used to look at him and think, are you mad? Look what you're doing. And he was right, you know, a lot of old hairdressers, you're bending over, it's really, the posture is, is terrible. And I often thought about it, you know, reached the end of my, you know, doing my thing, the Beatles, as you say, broke up and everything closed down, the boutiques closed down, and Apple. And I thought, you know what, do I want to be a hairdresser standing over a chair? No, there's more to life than that. So, wow. I moved on. God bless you. And, you know, it took a long time for you to write this book. I mean, you held out for a while. I held out for a while because, again, um, when things used to happen, uh, Beatle tragedies or anniversaries, I used to get caught, they, people used to phone. Um, one of the great things Derek Taylor did, he gave me, I went up there one day and it's like Father Christmas was there. There's all these sacks were there, like, uh, um, like Christmas cards, you'd imagine, you know, how if you were in Father Christmas's office. And I said to Derek, what, what was for all those sacks? And he said, oh, they're Beatle pressings. 
And I said, well, where'd you get them from? He said, oh, there's a firm there. It's called um, um, uh, Press, uh, not Reuters, uh, the Press, whatever they're called. I forgot the name of the people. And I said, what do they do? And he said, oh, we pay a fee. And anywhere a beetle, anything mentioned of a beetle, whatever, um, uh, they send it on to us around the world. You know, and I'm talking hundreds of sacks. And I said to him, um, oh, can, I, can you put my name down on that? He said, yeah, he just put my name down. And next thing I know, I'm getting, I'm getting all the um, public. I'm also getting things, not in that quantity, but it's things <laughs> from Sweden and Scandinavia that Leslie Cavendish, the Beatles, somewhere where my name was um, mentioned. So I, I formed a scrapbook. So all these memories that I, I've got, I've still got the scrapbook there, um, which is loads, Magical Mystery Tour, this one, that one, that one. And although, you know, people say, you know, you know, you, you, did, you had, to, if you were stoned, you don't remember the 60s. Well, I certainly was stoned at times, and I certainly do remember the 60s. But if I'd thought for one mad moment that I had a bad trip or something mad was going on, I used to go look at my book and go, did I really go on the Magical Mystery Tour? Did I really do that? Yes, I did. So I, <laughs> I can't. That's I went to live in Spain, and um, I used to sort of write down little stories when I was, um, when I sort of was uh, just sitting there in the afternoon, nothing to do. I used to write, used to look at the press cuttings and go, oh, and I started writing the stories down. And eventually, eventually, um, it got more than rather being a Beatles, um, a, a sort of a personal Beatles story about me. I suddenly realized Vidal and this and the culture. And that's when I thought, let's get it into a book now. I've, I've kept quiet long enough. There's nothing, there's nothing mad there. I remember when I went to the publishers or, or I went to so many publishers, what can you tell us about the Beatles that no one else has known? And I used to go up to them and I really used to take, you know, I used to get on my nerves actually. And I used to say, I'll tell you something, the Beatles took drugs. <laughs> but we know that. <laughs> yeah. The Beatles um, went with lots of other women. But we know that. I said, okay, so what more? What more do you want to know? You want to hear about my story? Or you don't? And one of them, and eventually, eventually, the Alma books, um, with, in fact, the guy I played tennis with, uh, loved the idea uh, of a personal story. You know, uh, somebody who wasn't the, the chauffeur, someone who wasn't an electrician and went into John Lennon's house and did that. This was someone who actually touched the Beatles' hair and he loved the idea of it. And then he put it out uh, and he pushed it. And um, Alma Books, give them credit. They, they, they loved the idea of it. I went to see them and um, they were really good. They promoted it and they, you know, so it ended up in, in a special edition, um, which was limited to one to 200. Then we get a hardback book. Then we then two years ago, they said, right, we're going to make it a paper book. A paperback, uh, which meant they obviously sold enough for them to do. They're not going to waste their time on a paperback, and then we get a Spanish version, um, which is which is fantastic. So, um, from from a story that ended up me keeping quiet, I'm really glad that it went out there in all different formats because there are lots of stories out there. There are lots of people who like to hear these stories, and I don't get bored talking about it because every time I do an interview, I never know what I'm going to do. I never know. I know roughly what some questions will be. It's obvious. Mm -hmm. But I, I mean, I'm, there's things in this interview that I never said in other interviews. And you look back at other interviews and it just, something just in my head gives me a, ah, that happened. And that's what I like. I don't want to hear about what people want to ask you. They say to me, or oh, can we ask you that? Ask me what you like. You know, 
I'm going wow. to tell you. Well, you want me to tell you the Beatles took drugs? Okay, the Beatles took drugs. <laughs> That's really what it's about. I found the book to be so interesting, lots of fun, things I've never seen or heard before. And I've been a Beatle fan all my life. And it's uh, been such a pleasure to have you on with speaking to Leslie Cavendish, with the, the author of a book called The Cutting Edge, The Story of the Beatles Hairdresser Who Defined an Era. Now, Mr. Cavendish, please tell us where people can, there's the book this right book, there, he's holding it up. No, only this book is a limited edition. Mm -hmm. um, I do have a few left. It's not because my publisher, before the lockdown, said to me, Leslie, I've got a few of, of your limited edition book, um, which we have. I think you've got more chance to sell them than we would because we can't promote it, we can't do this, can't go to the fairs. And I said, OK. And they, said, they gave me a few. Not, we did pretty well. You know, at the time, it was uh, you know, quite expensive for the time, but it was 25 English pounds, whereas the other book, the hardback, was 15. And um, I've put it, I've gone online uh, on, on Messenger, on Facebook, and I've told them that uh, if they contact me through Messenger, I will give them um, a signed personal copy of the book. It'll be a limited edition. There'll only be a few more left. I really haven't got that many left. And you'll be surprised the number of people I've sold quite a few of that and the paperbacks. And personal things, like if, it, if I wrote a book about, if Barry Gibb wrote a book, he would say, do, do it to me and do something that, uh, that you said. I get loads of those, you know, I remember, I remember meeting you there or can you please write something because Paul, um, it's when he sang that song, my husband proposed to me. So, you know, everybody's got their own ways of what the Beatles are about. So you can get that from me. Uh, you can get it from uh, a guy I think you know, Chachi, David Bedford. Yes. Um, yeah, uh, David, we've got part of the Beatles store and you go on Twitter, you can get that. Uh, I can sign it all or you just email me on www.beatleshairdresser.com and anybody wants any questions answered, I will. So it's out there on, the, on Amazon, whatever, whatever. But it's, um, it's certainly there. And the nice thing about it is um, it's, it's always someone, my publisher said to me, the reason why your book is, why we wanted it is it will never go out of date. Right. It, it's the Beatles. You know, the Beatles are the Beatles and you, no one can do any more than what you say, you know, unless you've got some more stories, Leslie. So um, um, so the book would always be there, which, which is a really nice thing. You know, it's not, I haven't, you know, if I do think of anything more, trust me, I, I've thought many things <laughs> and I could probably add a little bit more to certain things or certain clients, but, um, I, I, I worked a long time, eight years. That took me to put it all down, think about it, research it. And they, they, it's a bit like a lemon, I've, I've squeezed. There's still a bit of juice left in me though. <laughs> well, I think it's a fine book. Uh, no one can tell your story that's yours alone. And it's really unique. And I, you've been so generous with your time. We've gone so far over, but boy, there are so many more stories in the book. We didn't even talk about how your life could have become a fatality if you took a trip to the United States. Once upon a time in Hollywood, yeah. Yeah, so you'll have to get the book for that. And I'm speaking of the Charles Manson situation. That's an interesting story. You cut Dave Clark's hair. You were in the Magical Mystery Tour bus and in the film. You sat in studio sessions with the Beatles. I mean, there's so many stories. So please, we thoroughly recommend The Cutting Edge, the story of the Beatles hairdresser who defined an era. 
by the one and only Leslie Cavendish. What a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much indeed. Thank you, everybody there. One thing, Stephanie, do me a favor. Take a picture of his hair. After he's had it cut, I want to see it. I okay. will. Please. Count on it. I'll stay in quick Thank you. And David, don't forget, if you want to ask me any questions or your, any of your students, please come back to me. It'll be a pleasure. All right. Will do. Thank you. Thank you all very much on our panel. Thank you to Leslie Cavendish. And you've been listening to Get Back to the Beatles. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Ciao. Bye-bye. Don't hang up, Leslie. Make sure to check for the latest episode of Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette at pod617.com. The Boston Podcast Network.